Welcome to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age, the show designed to help make middle age your prime time of life by defying the notion that once you reach 40, 50, or even 60 years old, your crowning achievements are all behind you. Regardless of whether you're just approaching 40 or are firmly entrenched in your middle years, it's time to launch your very own personal journey toward a joyful and purpose-filled second half of life. Each week, host Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, will discuss the challenges common to middle age and help guide you to a brighter tomorrow. Now, here's Roy. During this segment, we're going to talk about a subject I guarantee approximately half of you never have or never will experience because I'm talking about all you men because today's topic is female sexual dysfunction a condition that my guest, Dr. Marsha Guess, M.D., labels the silent epidemic. But guys, please don't hang up. Most of us have a wife, fiancé, life partner, special girlfriend, at least one special lady in our lives, and we can all agree that female dysfunction can put a damper on the enjoyment of being together, man and woman, and over time can seriously harm a relationship. And here are a couple of surprising facts First, Dr. Guest informs that sexual dysfunction is often linked to a decline in overall female health. And second, it's shocking just how pervasive female sexual dysfunction is. Hard to believe, but here in the U.S., it affects about 50% of all women over 18 years old. And today we're going to talk about causes and treatment options. And Dr. Marsha Guest is an acclaimed a urogynecologist who has been featured as one of U.S. News and World Report's top doctors. She's appeared on the Today Show and has had research highlighted in the New York Times. And along with her colleague, Dr. Kathleen Connell, she's conducted and published a research on this silent epidemic. I'm having trouble talking today. Dubbed silent because patients often don't tell their doctors and doctors don't typically ask. Nobody likes to talk about it, do they? And Dr. Guest opens the door to helping folks understand the issue, treatment options, and how sexual dysfunction so often is linked to a decline in overall health. And welcome, Dr. Guest, to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. It's indeed an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Well, I know the term can accomplish a very broad spectrum of conditions, But to begin our discussion, can you give us a general definition of what you mean by the term female sexual dysfunction? What does it include? When you're talking about sexual dysfunction in females, there's different aspects of sexual function that can be altered. So for some women, it's the desire the desire to have intercourse. For some women, it's becoming aroused and having the physical features of arousal. For some women, it's not having an orgasm. And for some, they can have actually pain with intercourse. Wow. Yeah, that's a number of uh, broad range of possible problems. Some of them overlap, and sometimes you have a combination. But overall, it can just be lacking any of the various sort of normalcies of of, of sexual function. Yeah, that, that makes it pretty clear. Well, do researchers know the exact cause of uh, female sexual dysfunction, or if not, are are there any clues to what brings it on? So the exact cause is not known, and there are some studies, including our study, that are trying to look into this and understand the underpinnings of why women have these problems. Some of the under... 
some of the prevailing sort of um, theories are that there's an alteration in blood flow or the nerves that may be contributing to this. And we actually published a study a while back that showed that women with sexual dysfunction had decreased sensation in the genital region. And some other uh, investigators have also shown decreased blood flow to the area. So we think it's just a combination of things happening. Um, there's potentially some things happening in the brain that may trigger the desire and arousal functions as well. But currently, we have the most information on the blood flow and the neurological components. Oh, I see. Well, I noticed that you tell us that one of four women suffers from pelvic floor disorders. What are these disorders and how do they impact a woman's sexual functions? So that's a fantastic question. I'm actually a urogynecologist, yeah. and it's a long word. It just means we deal with women with pelvic floor disorders. When we're talking about those, we're talking about urinary incontinence or leaking in, on yourself or leaking in your underwear, yeah. pelvic organ prolapse, when the pelvic organs can actually drop out of their normal position and start falling down, hmm. and fecal incontinence, when women have actually you know stooling on themselves or uh, passing uh, gas too frequently. So hmm. those conditions, one in four women have actually reported reported having those symptoms, and unfortunately, most of those women aren't presenting to their doctors, and that's what the problem is. We're yeah. not getting the word out, so people aren't talking about it. Well, what prompted you and your colleague, Dr. Kathleen O'Connell, to initiate your study on female sexual dysfunction? So our first, our original study where we saw the decreased sensation in the genital area in women with sexual dysfunction made us say, well, if the nerves seem to be involved, perhaps, you know, overstimulating those nerves or enhancing stimulation of those nerves could improve sexual function. And uh, there was a creator, a, a gentleman who made a device called the Arosolator. Oh. And when we spoke to them, it seemed like their device was different than some of the other devices on the market because I, there's some concern about overstimulation and causing the nerves to stop functioning. And their device was designed actually by a gentleman who designed one of the first electric toothbrushes using a, a model um, and an, a, a motor that actually allow, allowed increased sensation without dampening the sensation um, or overstimulating. Yeah. And when they approached us with this idea, we said, well, if you let us, we'd like to design a study just to prove that what you're saying will improve our patients. And they yeah. gave us the ability to do that. There was a lot of common sense uh, indication that that would work, but there really hadn't been any scientific research on it, I guess. Exactly. And there's a lot of empirical evidence. Women say, oh, yes, I use these devices and they work, but it hadn't been compared, and no one really knew if they truly did do, if they truly do work. Yeah. And so what we was your hope this in week? launching your study? I guess basically to improve that uh, that kind of a device would work then. I think it was twofold. Number one, just trying to identify a treatment option for women who have these problems. Yeah. And the second one is there's a lot of uh, stigmatization behind the use of stimulation devices for women. Um, they're sold in sex shops. People, you know, don't talk about using them. It's, it's true. And, and, you know, we watch Viagra. They're commercials on, on, on you know, male sexual dysfunction products yeah. now. Yeah. And so knowing that, we thought if we can study it and show it truly works and has some kind of biological meaning behind it. So what we show with the device is that it actually improves nerve function, that sensation in the genital area, mm -hmm. improved in the women who used it. So we didn't just show that it worked to subject improve sexual dysfunction or even objectively, but we showed that it alters the nerve function. The nerves were more sensitive after using the device. Yeah, and 
that was really our goal, to show that there is maybe some biological plausibility and hopefully reduce the stigma behind using things that may treat women with sexual dysfunction. Well, please tell us a bit about the study parameters. How many participants, the length of your study, the age range, and how are the participants selected for this study? So we selected women who were um, had not undergone menopause, um, and it was really women who reported that they had sexual dysfunction most of the time. It's hard to study people who say, well, sometimes this, sometimes that. So we took people who reported having the problem most of the time, and meaning that they rarely or never got orgasm or they never yeah. or rarely got aroused. And we used specifically arousal and orgasm because those seem to be tracked. If you have arousal, it's a physiological con- uh, response that you have, and with orgasm, it's the same. And so we felt like we could monitor that a little bit better. Obviously, with desire, it might be that you had a bad night, you had a hard day, you just, yeah. you know, in a bad mood. So we wanted to use two things that didn't seem to relate to that. Yeah. Um, and it, basically, we gave them questionnaires, and they used these validated questionnaires and answered them, and we used the cutoff scores to define whether or not they had sexual dysfunction or not. So if they did not meet the appropriate cutoff, they were excluded from the study. So we actually had over 200 people who called in and wanted to participate in the study. And of those, about 65 met the criteria to participate. But after filling out the questionnaires and being evaluated, only uh, about 50 of the women actually qualified for the study and showed that they did have sexual dysfunction um, based on the validated questionnaires. And so we evaluated their nerve function at baseline. We gave them the oroscillator, and we asked them to start using the oroscillator. And we did not mandate how often they used it or how they used it. They could use it as foreplay. They could use it instead of intercourse. They could use it however they wanted because the idea was if you falsely make people do something they wouldn't routinely do, then is your study generalizable to everyone else? And we didn't think it would be. Well, I thought I saw somewhere that it said the age range was 19 to 64, and how could there be a... A premenopausal woman at 64. I guess you're you're right. Actually, we when when we originally started the study, the goal was to go premenopausal, and we started to realize that some of the people who were calling were not, but they also had some of the conditions. I see. And so, and what we also noticed is, and I think this was really important to us, because a lot of people, I think, have in their mind that women with sexual dysfunction um, meet a certain prototype. They must be this, they must be that. We found that a lot of our patients were married. A lot of them were in long-term, stable relationships. A lot of them had had sexual dysfunction for many, many years, and it was both bothersome not only to them, but to their partners who had a yeah. lot of guilt because they felt like what is it they were doing wrong because they yeah. could not satisfy their wife or their you know, their partner. Yeah. And so for us, that was very that was a learning experience for us, and um, it was great to hear because we recognized that in fact this idea of it being 50% is probably accurate because it really does affect all comers. All women are at risk for having sexual dysfunction. Yeah, so uh, participants use this, uh, I guess you call it a genital vibratory stimulation device, or GVSD, and that's what this uh, aerocillator, I can't pronounce it. Aerocillator, yes. Aerocillator, that's what that is, I guess. And you say that uh, women use this over, was it a period of three months, and they, you, you prefer they do it like once a week, although it's, you said it, you sort of left it open. To- we left it open. We required them to use it at least twice a week. We didn't care how they used it and what 
what frame, as I mentioned, it could be foreplay, it could be not. Nice. Um, but they used it for, we, we, we requested that they use it at least twice a week because if you don't use it, we felt like if you didn't use it enough, do you really know if it works? And if you use yeah. it, you know, once a month uh, for three months, it, can you really give us valid information about it? And we evaluated them at one month and at three months. And we Holy. looked at their nerve function, and using these validated questionnaires, we asked them again about their sexual function. I see. And at both one and three months, their sexual function improved. But interestingly, their nerve function also improved. They had increased sensation in the genital region. And for us, that was sort of a new finding. Um, it hadn't been seen before in any treatment for sexual dysfunction. And so it also gave us a, a plausible um, reason why these women might experience sexual dysfunction and might have improvement after certain therapies. What, what fascinated me is I, apparently, according to what I was reading from your study, uh, possible long-term benefits. Uh, some women had those even after they quit uh, discontinuing the uh, the uh, vibratory or the that word I can't exactly. pronounce later. That was actually one of the things we were most excited about because the idea that perhaps we're just waking these nerves up that you know hadn't been working before, and the idea that if you can just wake them up and continue to have them work, um, may be a great option for many women because it means that you're not reliant on something for long term. And then obviously we need more studies to determine if that's true over yeah. time. And we obviously need money for those things. If there's any listeners out there who want to donate money for studies, we're out here to take that money to do that. Well, beyond enjoyment of, uh, or, uh, of intercourse or the desire to get pregnant, are there positive health benefits to women from having sex, uh, not all the time, but regularly, you know, that, uh, what are some of these benefits, the overall health benefits from that? So I think rather than look at it as the benefits to having sex, it's the benefits to not having sexual dysfunction. So if someone obviously has a dysfunction, it means that the the issue is bothering them. It's burdensome to their yeah. life. So if you're trying to do something and you're not able to succeed at it, it's going to have a negative impact on your overall quality no, that, of that's life. That's a very good point. That uh, you know that doesn't mean you have to want to have sex, but if you do and can't, it's it's a far different <laughs> Absolutely. story. Absolutely. And it's and I think that's where um, that that should be emphasized that these are women and as I mentioned before many of them were in long term stable relationships so imagine that burden on you when you're in that relationship and you can't understand why that aspect of your life isn't working um, and so the, I think that when you look at quality of life you look at depression and things like that those are some of the concerning things that may be associated with sexual dysfunction for some women. Well, one thing that I found fascinating you. you pointed out that reaching an orgasm often leads to uh, even greater benefits due to release of feel-good hormones, which help you relax and gain a feeling of warmth and closeness, as well as relief of pain and depression. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And more than us sort of saying these things, there's a lot of there's in, there's data out there to suggest that these things are true. Um, I think that the more we study women with sexual dysfunction, the more information we're going to learn, and the more we come up with 
treatment options that work for these women, the more we'll find out. If we can treat them, we can go back and find out the differences, right? Now with limited treatments available, we only know they're experiencing these things, and they don't even know for sure that they're associated with sexual dysfunction. Yeah. You don't know that association's there until they get better, and then that association's gone. And I think that the more we put time and resources into female sexual dysfunction like we do male sexual dysfunction, yeah. the more likely we are to improve quality of life for women. That's such a good point. Well, let's say a listener would like to try out the Erosolator. Uh, is it possible to purchase the device without a prescription? Uh, and where do you go to, to obtain one? So the Erosolator is actually sold online uh, oh. by the device uh, manufacturers. Oh. We actually, when we did this study, I mentioned that we uh, we um, wanted to use their device for the study, but we ourselves do not, we are not uh, makers of the device. We yeah. don't have any financial gains to the device, but yeah. the device is definitely available online, um, and it can be purchased um, online at from the they have a website. If you it's www.rosolator.com, and uh, you had questions about how it's pronounced, how it's spelled, it's probably just as difficult. It's E R O S C I L L A T O R. So, and you can go on there and see the device itself. Our study um, information um, is available also online. Um, yeah. Well, that sounds that sounds like a great way to do it. So you wouldn't have to have a doctor's prescription or anything. And to, right. Well, you mentioned and, that's kind of like the uh, poor, the uh, toothbrush, <laughs> right? The electronic toothbrush <laughs> or whatever. That, uh, and I I think it's really important though that people don't just go online and buy it. I am a big fan yeah. of making sure that they talk about these issues um, and bring it up to someone. Um, to even it can be a psychologist, it can be their primary care provider, yeah. because I find that. Many times there's multiple things that may be contributing to normal sexual function, and if yeah. they go and get it and those other things are still contributing, they may not get better. Yeah. So that it should be a comprehensive approach to improving their sexual function. Yeah, and then you only feel worse if you got that and they didn't feel better after that. But the, Well, how would you suggest a woman approach her doctor about a personal sexual dysfunction? What if she feels like it's simply too embarrassing? How do, so, how do you overcome that? You mentioned the one in four women with urogynecology. A lot of people tell me it's embarrassing when they're peeing in their pants or when they're yeah, pooping no, in their pants. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, at some point, you have to take control of your own life, yeah. and you have to make sure you have a good relationship with the person you're working with. When someone has a primary care provider that they're comfortable talking to, they can easily approach that person and bring up these things. And if they find that they're not comfortable saying it, it might be time to find a new primary care provider because they should feel like if they tell their provider that they're having any kind of issue, if it's incontinence, yeah. if it's sexual dysfunction, yeah. that that provider is going to listen to them and provide them with some kind of, um, if, even if it's a referral, if the provider says, you know, I don't deal with this, but let me refer you to someone, yeah. that's yeah. still some sort of positive response to them bringing up an issue. Yeah. And I feel like it should be just as comfortable as telling them that they're, they're having chest pain yeah. or that they're, you know, having pain in their left toe. To no, me, they're the same thing. If you don't feel comfortable uh, talking to your doctor, you're a teammate, not, uh, you know, it's got to be a team 
effort, and uh, if you can't really share everything that's important with that position, you probably are going to the wrong position. Absolutely, absolutely. This is a program about middle age, so I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up menopause. And you mentioned that your study did include some older women. Uh, did your uh, study uncover sexual dysfunction that uh, relates directly to menopause? And uh, are there symptoms similar to those found in younger women? And uh, does this uh, accelerate? I can't. <laughs> right. So that for older women, or is it just uh, basically for younger women? And it, it, so I absolutely would say absolutely not just for, for older women, I mean for younger women. Yeah. I think that our goal is to identify treatments that are available for all women. Importantly, though, in older women, or not older, but women in menopause, I, yeah. I think young and old are sort of dated terms at this point. Yes, they um, are. Right? And so, but in women who have undergone menopause, in some cases they do have vaginal dryness that may go along with menopause and yeah. having the low estrogen. So yeah. in some of those women, um, uh, uh, vaginal lubricants and other things may be needed to help enhance that response. And so, again, this is where talking to your provider, understanding your pelvic anatomy, understanding sort of what may be contributing to your symptoms is very, very important. And I really do encourage women not only to go, yes, feel free to purchase this device if you have aroused orgasm and fixed function. It, it did also improve in women with pain and that they actually improved their pain. Um, but I think it is important also to have that relationship with that provider and make sure that they understand what's going on so that you understand your body and what's going on and make sure that you are a good candidate um, for um, the improvement with the device. Yeah, you, you also mentioned that, uh, that sometimes childbirth can affect the uh, sexual dysfunction. And can do women that suffer underlying nerve damage as a result of childhood, can that be reversed through your... Uh, treatment methods so we just found we know that uh, that nerve decreased sensation, which is obviously regulated by nerves, yeah. is improved with the device. That was the one thing, one of the things that we found with this device, and that's what made us so happy because, again, it gave us some kind of biological reason why the device might cause improvement. We don't know for sure the extent of the of the damage and if it gets to a point where you know there is a point of no return or if it's yeah. only if it's mild damage. We didn't study all of those things, but we did take all comers, and so we can argue that some of them may have had traumatic births, and they still responded. So, um, again, it made us very happy to see the, the positive response that we got in the sensation as well. Well, that's great. Where would you suggest our listeners go to learn more? Do you have a, uh, a website or a place they should go to uh, learn more about you or to, or to contact you or uh... Where, where they get additional information, where should they go for that? Absolutely. I'm, as I mentioned before, a urogynecologist at the University of Colorado, and we do have a website. It's called coloradowomenshealth.com forward slash urogynecology. That's also a big word spelled U-R-O-G-Y-N-E-C-O-L-O-G-Y. Okay, so that's Colorado Women's Health slash or com, dot com. Dot com slash virogynecology. Urogynecology. Or Euro. U R O. Yes, urogynecology. Okay, well that sounds great, and uh, 
To conclude, thank you so much, Dr. Guest, for this vital information that can be so empowering to our female listeners. And to sum up her conclusions, female sexual dysfunction is far more common than most folks realize, but very few of us want to talk about it. And the good news, uh, Dr. Marsha Guess's research offers scientific evidence that help is on the way, and it may not require extensive, costly medicine or treatment. And experts still don't know the precise cause, as she points out, but there is that inexpensive, non-evasive solution available to address the physical aspects of sexual dysfunction. And once again, that device is... <laughs> the oscillator. <laughs> You're right. One of these days, I'll be able to pronounce the oscillator. And uh, as Dr. Guest has revealed, improved sexual activity can lead to a better overall health, improve your marriage or life partnership, and help restore joy in middle age, as we all know. And thank you so much, Dr. Marcia Guest, for sharing this invaluable information. Thank you very much for inviting me today. I really appreciate it. Social isolation has become a grave health epidemic, and it certainly impacts a lot of us in our middle years. Sadly, it's only getting worse. You realize that since the 1980s, the percentage of American adults who say they're lonely has doubled from 20% to 40%. And not only does loneliness reduce quality of life and the joy of living, it also may impact your health. Former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has sounded the alarm about negative health issues and a shortened lifespan associated with loneliness. But here's some good news. A new awakening to the importance of meaningful human interaction is leading people, especially experienced folks like you and me, to seek out opportunities for deeper, more authentic connection with others and with themselves. And I'm talking about face-to-face interaction, not these... uh, electronic laptop and smartphone interactions that so many younger folks favor today. And here's some even better news. My second guest today, Jalala Dalaja Bonheim, has developed a practice designed to establish life-changing connection to heal both individual and societal anguish. And her practice is called Circle Work, and her circle gatherings are spreading rapidly worldwide and it benefits both men and women. But Jelada Baumheim has a special passion for healing and empowerment of women. But you gentlemen don't tune us out because the circle circle work practice can work for us also. And Jelada Baumheim, Ph.D., is an internationally acclaimed speaker and award-winning author. And she's one of the world's foremost experts in the use of circle gathering as a uh, gatherings as a tool for healing and empowering women. She's founder of the Institute of Circle Work and has led circles for over three decades and has trained hundreds of circle work leaders from around the world. And she's author of a brand new book, The Magic of Circle Work, the practice women around the world are using to heal and empower themselves. And hello, uh, Jalaja. It's indeed an honor to have you with us here today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. And forgive me for uh, abusing your first name. I'm just not oh, right that's okay. That. Everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's begin with the basics. Tell us a bit about the practice of circle work and how does the practice relate to and tap into the ancient power and symbolism of the circle. 
Well, you know, people have always gathered in circles. When you think back to our ancestors who, who discovered fire, of course yeah. they would gather in a circle around the fire. So it's a very, very ancient form. Yeah. And um, when you look around the world, you see that in tribal cultures, even to this day, when people want to get together as a community, they gather in a circle. Oh, I see. It's, it's just a very, very natural way. In a circle, everyone can see each other. Yeah. Um, so the form itself gives you a message that says nobody here is more important than anyone else. That's so you true. Know? Instead of having someone up in front, uh, quote, leading. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it, it really gives you the message each person here has a vital role to play and each person has a voice. Yeah, I like how you uh, relate that uh, the qualities of circle include wholeness, unity, centeredness, balance, and integrity. And I think that uh, yeah. that's, uh, sums it all up. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what what I try to do in my circles is really create a space where people feel absolutely safe. Oh, I um, see. And safety is a very, very important aspect of this because when people do not feel safe, they're not going to share their their deepest truth. That's so true, yeah. You, you, you know, really have so to you, feel that um, there won't be any negative consequences from sharing with the people in your circle. Because uh, if, if people have that fear, they're not people are holding share. back. Yeah. And when you look at most of our, our social interactions, you see that people are, in a sense, you might say, wearing a mask. I mean, it's it's okay. It's the way it is. But I think we all need places where we can be totally authentic and where we can really show up for who we are. Yeah. And um, there aren't many places like that in our world. Well, tell me, is a circle work a religious practice? Are there beliefs to adopt or dogmas to embrace? No, absolutely not. In fact, one of the goals of circle work is to have a structure that allows all kinds of people to come together and connect. Oh, I see. You know, for example, I work a lot in the Middle East where I bring Jews and Palestinians together. Wow. So, um, if that in works, a I, don't know, I must work everywhere because of yeah, the exactly. uh, hatred that they have for each other they have had to... And you think about how fragmented our own society is, whether it's racial or political. There are so many fractures that run through our communities. And so circle work gives us a way of coming together where we can really connect with people that we ordinarily might never meet. Yeah. Let's get and the, what you uh, see happening. conservatives in a circle, and maybe they can Yes. <laughs> Actually, I've been doing that, oh, um, and it's very, very interesting. You know, <laughs> when people really meet in a, in a structure where there is respect and people hear each other, yeah. they start, to, their, their, their views of each other really start to change, like the prejudice starts to fall off, and they begin to realize, you know what, we're all the same. Yeah. Well, that's such a key. Well, if circle work is not based upon any uh, religion, how does it, uh, as you put it, co-create an entirely new kind of uh, spiritual community? If they're not united in uh, belief in a common theology or ideology, what's their commitment? 
Well, you know, when you look at different religions, you see that there are certain fundamental values, um, very important kindness, for example. There is no religion that does not emphasize the importance of kindness and compassion. So there are certain things that we can all agree on that are really fundamental to harmony within our relationships. Respect, kindness, those things are absolutely essential. Now, the other thing is, when you look at the circle itself, um, you know, we live on a round planet. And so (laughs) the circle itself is a universal symbol of our oneness as a, yeah. as a, as a human family, as a planetary community. Yeah. And so we might have different opinions, we might have different religious beliefs, but we are all citizens of one planet. Yeah. You know, we are all members of the same species. Yeah. And we know today this is a small planet. We have yeah. to learn to get along. We have to learn to not get hung up on these differences, but to really keep in sight the things that unite us. Yeah, that's so true. Well, you tell us that part of the appeal of circlehood is that it involves more than just talking. Please describe uh, some of the wide range of nonverbal tools that uh, you use to evoke uh, states of deep centeredness and profound peace. What are some of those? Yeah, yeah, I think that's very important because when we, you know, in our culture, we're very much up in our heads. (laughs) And that's fine for certain things. But if you really want to connect on a on a heart-centered level with other people, yeah. you need to connect with your body. I mean, our hearts are part of our body, yeah. right? So um, there's a lot of practices that we use that might involve music or movement or breathing, going out into nature, silence, yeah. journaling. There are so many different practices where people say, wow, in my everyday life, I never really come home to myself in this way. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the people that I work with, they might do you know, meditation or yoga or things like that. Yeah. But the difference is in circle work, although there is this invitation to introspection, to connecting with ourselves... Then we come out and we're connecting to each other. And we're connecting to each other in a different way. There is such a sense of quiet and openness and really listening to each other in a way that in our world is is very rare. Yeah, we always make a point that um, talking about middle-age renewal or renewal at any point in life that no one is ever really fulfilled or renewed if they stay within themselves. It's got to move beyond, you know, self-renewal to connection with others and uh, going out, like you say, into the world and uh, certainly the community and uh, places beyond yourself. Or really, it's not, your ecstasy is not going to last very long. Right. <laughs> I think, and I love that you're talking about those, you know, middle age and older years because. To my mind, that is a time where we really begin to ask, well, okay, I've, I've raised a family or I've had a career, but what does my own soul want? Yeah. You know, and you start to really live for yourself. 
And not, I don't say that in a, I'm not talking about selfishness. I'm yeah. talking about a good sense of, wow, what is really important to yeah. me? Well, I, sir, a, a group setting is a great place to experience the healing power of circle work. But what if a lady or, for that matter, a gentleman in our audience can't locate a group or a circle to join? In your promotion, you tell us as an individual you can use the principles and tools of cir- circle work to heal yourself and your relationships. Can you briefly describe the uh, four-step process for individual healing if, you, if you're not in a, a circle uh, group? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the circle, I, over the years, I've developed really hundreds of tools and techniques and practices. And, of course, we use them in the circle, but you can take them out and use them in your daily life because what we do in the circle is not meant to stay in the circle. You know, we are really meant to apply this in the midst of our daily life. So um, I really say to people, all, everything that we do in the circle, you can also do on your own. It's, of course, it's not the same as being yeah. in a circle, um, but there are many aspects that you can, you can take out. So, um, for example, when, when women come to one of my retreats, They've made a commitment that they are going to step out of their ordinary life. Yeah, I love that instruction to to step out of whatever's got you all worried and in a tizzy and all these projects you have going. (laughs) And I would say to anyone, you need every day, you need some time, even if it's just five minutes, where you say, this time is just for myself, and I'm just going to sit here quietly, and I'm really going to pay attention to myself. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, and, uh, mm-hmm. no, I didn't mean to announce, uh, interrupt, but uh, I noticed uh, you have a your base. The book we're talking about, the magic of circle work, doesn't really uh, include detailed instructions for forming a circle if someone was trying to do that or sustaining it. But you have a companion uh, companion manual you offer. Tell us a right. little about that. Yeah, so that is the Circle Work Training Manual, which I originally started writing for my students, the graduates oh. of the Circle Work Training. Yeah. And then I realized, wow, anyone really who is working with groups can benefit from these practices and these tools. So that training manual is available to anyone who would like to work with circles, or it might not even be a circle. They might just be involved in some kind of group, yeah. and they would like to take their work to a more deep, more more place of safety and intimacy. Well, who is and your so, book, the, the Magic of Circle Work? Who is it primary, uh, primarily written for? I know you have a number of types of people at the it's really written for anyone who is interested in healing, in um, intimacy, you know, and I'm not yeah. talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking yeah. about really relating to people in a more authentic, deep way. Yeah. Um, we men yeah. could give that as a, it would be a great gift for our uh, a spouse or a loved one or something. It we would. Might, we might be <laughs> sneak a peek at it. <laughs> yes, it would. It would. Yeah. It would. Mm-hmm. 
Well, where's yeah. the best place to go to uh, preview and purchase your book, uh, The Magic um, of Circle Work? Well, the easiest place is just to go to magicofcirclework.com. Oh, I see. So that's the website then. That's Magic. the website. They can, And from there, they can also go to my personal website. They can go to the website of the Institute for Circle Work. But oh, that's wow. the best place to start is magicofcirclework.com. Okay, that's fine. Uh, and uh, in conclusion, as we stress in this interview, millions of us women and we men also are living our daily lives today in a state of spiritual famine. And let's face it, at middle age, so many of us have drifted away from the organized religion of our youth. And even if we do still attend church, religion no longer provides the spiritual nourishment that a lot of us crave. And spiritual famine usually goes undiagnosed, as Gisela points out, yet it's no less painful than physical famine. And worst of all, it causes symptoms that range from anxiety and depression to addiction and violence. And I'm certain all of us can agree that widespread spiritual famine is one of the primary causes of all the hate and bitter divisiveness so common in our country and in the world today. And as my guest today, Gisela Bonheim, uh, with her Circle Work Initiative, offers a unique but very practical solution to all uh, that which ails so many. And what's so great about it, the elements of Circle Work evoke in uh, in participants states of deep centeredness and profound peace, and as women and well as men come home to themselves, they also discover the power of genuine love, respect, and caring for others, or as uh, Dijala would put it, sisterhood. And as most all of us know by now, we can't really express love, respect, and honor for others until we respect love and honor ourselves. And if you want to discover a whole lot more about this sacred practice, I highly recommend Dijala's Bonheim's book, The Magic of Circlehood. And if it's working to promote harmony between Jewish and Palestinian women, I'm certain that Circlehood can work for us. And thanks a million, Dijala Bonheim, for joining us today, and best of success in your new book. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And that's it for today. Tune in next week when we'll talk about avoiding or overcoming the worst of the worst. Goodbye for now from Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. You've been listening to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age, hosted by Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of both A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, and Wake Up, Captain and Crew, Restart Your Engines. You can learn more about Roy and his Middle Age Renewal Training System by visiting his website, middleagerenewal.com. 